Um, today's reading is from first letter to Thessalonians, uh, chapter uh, 3, verses 6 to 13. And you can find it on page 1187. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we are encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night, any day, and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Thanks, Estira. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Madish. I'm one of the ministers here at Trinity Church. Um, if I haven't met you yet, um, it's great to have you here. Please stay and chat afterwards. I'd love to get to know you a little bit better. Um, if it's your first time here, please do keep your Bibles open in front of you. Um, we believe that God is speaking to us by his word, and we'll pray and ask him to help us as we listen. Let's pray. Father, what a delight it is that you invite us to know you and love you. What a privilege it is to listen to you and to respond, knowing that you care for us. We pray this afternoon that you will help us to listen with the desire to submit to your will. Thank you for the promise that your word is living and active, and that by your spirit, you give us new life and make us more and more like our Lord Jesus. We pray that you would change us. Amen. <clears throat> well, the last week's been a rather unusual one. I've been observing the events following the death of the Queen with much interest, but I've also been watching as an outsider. I'm not British and I've not lived in England for very long. I've been amazed by how much pomp and ceremony there is. There is far more than I ever imagined possible. And I've been struck by the media coverage. Almost every other news story has been pushed all the way down. I've had to go to all sorts of other um, news sites from other parts of the world to actually find out what's happening in the world. Uh, and the British coverage of, the, of her death has, has been it's shown so much respect, it's almost been reverential. I've been really struck by that. It's pretty amazing. But the thing that has struck me even more is the genuine affection that ordinary people from all sorts of walks of life, all different classes, have for her. It's quite stunning. People have shed tears as if their own grandmother had died. They've been willing to brave the cold are queuing up all day and all night so they can walk past her coffin 
for a few seconds and pay their respects. That is quite staggering to me as an outsider. One of the reasons I find it curious is that despite all of the carefully orchestrated images surrounding the monarchy, the idea of stability that the Queen um, exuded, if you look back over the last few decades, her empire, or the empire she inherited, fragmented into dozens of independent states under her watch, often quite violently. The New York Times, for example, published an op-ed drawing attention to the monarchy's unrepentant role in colonialism and all of its abuses, to how its wealth and power was acquired, and so on. But still, the headline for that editorial was, Mourn the Queen, not her empire. It seems that even critics of the institution really respected her. And I think it has something to do with her desire to serve. She really stood out for the way she carried herself, for the way she led her country and other nations of the Commonwealth. She didn't lord her power and authority over others. She sought their good. Now, if you think back to a few weeks ago, I'm fairly confident that no one shed a tear when Boris Johnson lost his grip on power. But there is real grief and sorrow at the Queen's death. She really loved her people, and her people loved her back. It's a really moving picture of how true affection seeks the good of the other. Now, the prayer that we're reflecting on today uh, we're in a series where we're looking at a number of different prayers of the New Testament over a few weeks. And this week, we're looking at a prayer from 1 Thessalonians. And it's a prayer that flows out of Paul's love for people. Now, we'll eventually get to the prayer. It's at the end of chapter 3. But before we do, we're going to spend about half of our time dwelling on the affection that these Christians have for Paul and the other workers who brought the gospel to them. See, Paul and his friends had been traveling and preaching Christ in what is now central Turkey. They were called to Macedonia, and so they went, first to Philippi, and then to Thessalonica. Now, Paul preached in the synagogue. That's what he did. He would go to the Jewish synagogue, and he would try and point people to Christ from their own scriptures. And both Jews and Greeks heard the gospel and believed it. But there were some Jews in Thessalonica who stirred up trouble. And within a couple of weeks, they ran Paul and his friends out of the city, far sooner than they planned to leave. So now you've got these Christians who've heard the gospel preached over two or three weeks. They've believed it, and that's pretty much it. They've had very little instruction. Paul had tried to go back to them again and again, but he'd been prevented from doing so. Now, as you can imagine, he was really concerned about them. Would they hold on to the faith? Would they keep going? And they had questions about Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Were these guys authentic? Paul hadn't been back. Was he a fraud? And the opposition they were experiencing didn't subside. Had they been duped? 
Was the message they believed true? Was it actually worth suffering for? So one of the aims of this letter is to answer these sorts of questions, uh, to show these Christians that Paul and company were genuine when they were with them originally, and even now in their absence. The gospel that they've heard is in fact the real deal. Now the thing that stands out as you read this letter is the depth of their affection for each other. You wouldn't believe that they'd only spent a couple of weeks together. It sounds like the fruit of a lifelong friendship. There is genuine love. Uh, take a look with me. I turn to chapter 2, verse 7. Look at how uh, Paul describes his love for them. He says, Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. We loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. There's real affection here, isn't there? A deep tenderness, like a mother caring for her own baby. He's really concerned for their well-being. Paul here isn't just a professional. There's deep tenderness. This isn't just his job. Thessalonica is not just the next city on the list of places to evangelize. It's not, great, let me go preach the gospel, tick the box, and move on. He really cares about these people. He's really giving of himself to them, immersing himself in the, into their lives. And they are sharing their lives in return. Look how the picture develops. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Now he says, We dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, urging. Do you see how the mother-child relationship has now morphed into a father-child relationship? Again, the closeness of family there is present. There's a tenderness. Now take a look at uh, 2, verse 17. Now we've got brothers and sisters. He's really racing through these family metaphors, right? They might be really young in the faith, but they are full members, full participants among the people of God. They're brothers and sisters. And then see what he says there. When we were orphaned by being separated from you. That's pretty strong language. Now he's turned the tables around. Now, they're the parent, and he's the child, and it's like he's been ripped away from them. Now, try pulling a baby away from its mother and see how they react. That's how Paul is feeling. And look at the remainder of that verse. Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. There's real grief at being pulled away from them, being forced to separate himself. And it's emphasizing here that there's a, there a two-wayness to this relationship. It's not just Paul's love for this church. They care about him too. There's really strong and emotive language at play. Now, maybe some of you are really expressive and outgoing. I'm not. I don't use this language even to talk about my family, especially not in public. I don't know if you would. Paul doesn't hold back. 
he's happy to gush about how much he loves them. Back in the, well, it feels like the Stone Age now. It was a long time ago. I used to watch a sitcom called Scrubs. Anyone familiar with that? Come on, there must be some people. Yeah, correct. It's set in a hospital with medical interns. And two of the characters, JD and Turk, were the absolute best buddies, right? And the thing about them was that they were unashamed about expressing it. Uh, take a look at this clip to have a glimpse into their friendship. Have we got sound, guys? <laughs> we'll give it another second. Great. We might come back to this. We might not. It's fine. No problem. If you know the sitcom, you'll know how crazy these guys are, right? They don't hold back. They're happy to run and scream and shout. Um, in, in the clip, uh, Turk comes back from his honeymoon, and he's so thrilled to see JD that they basically run into each other's arms after a lot of drama. Now, it's a really silly clip, but the enthusiasm of their affection is really, really infectious. You cannot help but watch it and laugh along and really just enjoy the friendship that they have. Yeah, and sometimes I sit back and, and, and think, man, I wish I had a friend like that. That looks awesome. Um, some of us were sitting last week and we were reading to Timothy together. And uh, there's another portrait there of a really tender relationship between Timothy uh, and Paul uh, as a father and a son. And I joked at the time um, that if we're not coming to tears when we think about each other, we just don't care enough. And I said I would say that here, and then I said no, I wouldn't say that here. But there is actually some truth to that, right? We don't need to come to tears, but there is a depth of affection and commitment that is just so natural in the New Testament that so often in our relationships, in our churches, we tend to lack. It's really worth reflecting on whether we have that sort of love for each other. And if we do, why are we shy or embarrassed about expressing it? It's the most natural thing. If God has adopted us into his family, if we're becoming members together of the same family, then it is absolutely natural to have that depth of concern and care for the people alongside us. Do we show that we prioritize that sort of relational depth in the day-to-day -day decisions that we make? When you're picking what you're going to do, where you're going to be, how committed are we to meeting with each other like this on a Sunday afternoon, on a Tuesday evening when we get together for small groups, throughout the week at other times? in our shared lives with one another. Are you excited at the opportunity to hang out with other people? Or is it kind of like, oh, I'm really tired, I want to drag my feet, I'd much rather just curl up in bed or read a book or watch Netflix. What is it? Think about your daily rhythms, right? We do a lot of very regular, ordinary stuff. Is there more of that regular stuff that you can do just with other people? 
So we all eat, right? Yeah, I know you do, because you're here. <laughs> well, have you tried being deliberate about eating with other people? When you, when you have a lunch break at work, do you, do you just you know, spend 20 minutes, eat quietly on your own, and then kind of duck back and do work? Or do you actually take the time out and go and sit with someone and have a conversation? Do you try meet up with someone from church if you happen to work in the same area, or you live near each other, and you happen to work from home on that day? There's a lot we can do to spend more time with each other, to build those friendships, to deepen those relationships. Can we express this love as well by committing to praying for each other? That's what we're gonna see this pointing to in a couple of minutes. What are the things that we can do to show that that love is genuine? And if it's not there, what are the things we can do to help cultivate it? Right, this church, Thessalonica, their love really, really stands out. But it's also an affection that seeks the good of others, right? The love has a certain kind of direction to it. It's not aimless love, it's love that wants what is best for the other person. The apostles were not driven by selfish gain. They were driven by the good of the people they were preaching to. Take a look at, take a look at their conduct amongst these Christians. Uh, chapter one, verse five, uh, Paul is very clear right from the start you know how we lived among you, and you see those last three words? For your sake. Chapter two, verse three. The appeal that we make doesn't spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. No, on the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We aren't trying to please people, but God the God who tests our hearts. See what Paul is saying? We are not motivated by a desire to please people. We don't love ourselves. No, we are motivated by a desire to please God, and so we love other people. Take a look at 2 verse 5. We never used flattery. We didn't put on a mask to cover up greed. Verse 6, we're not looking for praise from people. Verse 9, you remember our toil and hardship. We worked night and day so that we wouldn't be a burden to anyone while we preached to you. Verse 10, you know how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you. You get the picture, right? You can see their character and their conduct. And Paul is saying there is an authenticity to that. We were legitimate. We were genuine in the way in which we showed our love. And here's the reason why. Chapter two, verse two. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi. They were badly beaten. They were thrown into prison. Now you know this, but with the help of our God, we still dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. Do you see what's at stake? There's great opposition. There are people making their lives really painful. They're getting beaten, they're getting thrown to prison. That opposition follows them throughout Macedonia. But Paul says, we were willing to put ourselves into harm's way for your ultimate good. 
From a human perspective, there is nothing in it for them. They aren't trying to make a quick buck. They're not trying to gain a following. No, they have long days, sleepless nights. They are under constant threat. They're working hard with their hands so that they have somewhere to sleep and food to eat. And they are speaking boldly. They're preaching Jesus, who in the language of chapter one, rescues us from the coming wrath. Do you see how they're motivated? Do you see the, the shape and the direction that their love takes? They want what is very best for the, these Christians. It's the same reason that Paul sends Timothy to them. Timothy is a valuable and trusted friend. And for Paul to send him, it means that he loses Timothy's help. Well, why does he do it? Chapter 3, verse 2, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. He knew the pressures they were under, and he was concerned for them. And so even though it leaves him alone and undersupported, he sends Timothy where he can't go. Now this is right at the heart of the gospel, this kind of behavior, this sort of approach. Jesus, our Lord, comes to us for our good. Not because he lacks anything, not because he has some desire for self-fulfillment. No, he comes to us from heaven to earth for our good. He doesn't lord it over us. Instead, he chooses to deny himself. He gave himself to shame and suffering, dying so that we might live. And he calls us, his people, to live in the same way. We are not to use power or influence to get our way. We are to put our self-interest to death for the good of others. That's Christian love. Genuine love seeks the good of others. It puts their needs above our own. So, thinking about spending time with people, but think about the time that you do spend with other people and what drives that time. Are we there to get something out of it or to give of ourselves? On the surface of it, do we mainly gather around my interests, the kind of music I like, the food I enjoy, the places I'm comfortable going? Going deeper, what do we talk about? Do we have conversations about faith? Do we reflect on our joys and challenges in light of Jesus' rule and Jesus' return? Are we aiming to scratch beneath the surface of our daily experiences to work out what's really going on at the level of our hearts? Are we trying to encourage each other to live holy lives? See, Christian love seeks the other's good. And not just now, for the next few years, but for eternity. And seeking eternal good means that we care for people's faith. So we're seeing a real picture of genuine love with these Christians. We're seeing that it's a love that seeks the good of others. And then we see as well that it produces real joy. Timothy catches up with Paul eventually in Corinth. 
and he brings good news. He tells them these Christians are standing firm. Paul responds with overflowing joy. Sending Timothy to the Thessalonians encouraged them. Timothy coming back with a positive report encourages Paul. Do you see it's a two-way street of concern and encouragement? By showing their love for each other, by expressing it, both these Christians and Paul and his co-workers are encouraged. Paul is really happy that all is well. They've received the gospel as the word of God. They did that originally. And now their faith has been proven because they're persevering under trial. He's gone from being worried, sending Timothy when he can no longer stand it, to now being filled with joy and thanksgiving. It's a really beautiful picture of the richness of Christian fellowship. A fellowship that produces mutual encouragement in the faith. But notice where that joy and thanksgiving is directed. Verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9. It produces rich thanksgiving to God. Paul's joy is directed to God because this is God's work. God is the one producing and sustaining their faith. By telling the Thessalonians why he's thanking God, he's not just praying to God quietly, he's praying to God and he's telling them, this is what I'm praying to God about He's encouraging them. And so the prayer becomes a means of asking God for his grace, but it is also a means of his grace to strengthen his people. Seeing God's work in the lives of other Christians ought to fill us with delight. In the same way it fills joy, it it fills Paul with delight. It's appropriate for us to return that joy and thanksgiving to God. Now that's a pretty long introduction. Don't panic, we've only got another 45 minutes. No, no, I'm joking. (laughs) We're about halfway through. It's really important to get that background in our heads because that is what drives the prayer in these last few verses. There's a correlation between how much we love and how much we pray. The more we love, the more we will pray. And in God's wisdom, there's a positive feedback cycle. The more we pray for people, the more we will grow to love them. It works in both directions. And so this prayer like the others in the New Testament, gives us a window into God's heart. Paul here is praying for their faith to be strengthened, their love to increase, and for their hope in Jesus to be realized. So let's look at the prayer. We'll be quick. Verse 11. He doesn't directly ask for their faith to be strengthened. He says, may God may our Lord Jesus clear the way for me to return to you. On the surface, that's curious. But it's not a selfish desire to satisfy his longing. You can see the motivation in the verse before that, in verse 10. He wants to see them again to supply what's lacking in their faith. It's the same reason, verse 2, that he sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage them in their faith. And so the prayer for him to get to see them 
is a prayer for their faith. I want you to notice a few things in that. First, he and the others pray for them constantly, night and day. They have regular times of prayer. And they regularly remember the Thessalonians when they pray. The way it's expressed here suggests that it's not a vague, we pray that Christians everywhere would grow in their maturity. It's a particular remembrance of these Christians in their trials and their difficulties. It's a particular appeal to God to sustain them and to grow them. So that's a challenge for us to pray consistently for others. To make a commitment that, you know what, I care about you. And I'm gonna show that care by regularly, consistently praying for you. Second thing I want you to notice. Although the Thessalonians' faith was genuine, there's room for them to grow. We are given a glimpse later on in the letter of particular areas where there was a gap between their belief and their living, such as in their sexual purity or their confidence in the resurrection of Jesus and their resurrection with him. And so it reminds us, again, how dependent we are on God. We're dependent on God to believe his words to believe what he says, and then to live in light of it. It's not something that we can do on our own. There will be some things that God says that we are not persuaded is true. Then there'll be other things that we accept, but which our desires and actions just haven't caught up with. God is continuing to change us, and we express our dependence on him to change us by praying. Third thing I want you to notice, Paul doesn't just pray and leave it at that. Great, job done. He's done a fair bit already. He's sent Timothy to them, and Timothy's come back. But he longs to serve them himself. That's why he's praying in verse 11, Jesus, please open the way for me to get back to them. His love for them, his concern for their well-being doesn't stop at prayer. It moves him to want to serve them himself. We should adopt that same mindset of service. As we pray for Christians that we know, as we pray for each other, we will discover ways in which we can serve. You might be praying for someone and realize that, actually, I can give this person some encouragement. Or maybe I can meet with them to chat, and then we can pray together. Or maybe you're praying for a new mum, and you realize, oh, hang on, I, I can actually practically help her, and I can help this family so that she can get some rest. And, oh yeah, she can actually gather with other Christians and be encouraged. Or I'm praying for someone who's new at church. And I realize, oh yeah, I can actually befriend this person. And then we can spend time with each other and I can encourage them. 
And as you do that with people, as you get to know them, as you start praying for them, you will discover a host of ways in which you can practically get stuck into their lives and serve them. That's what Paul is doing here. Our desire for the well-being of others shows in how much we pray for them and in what we pray. Whether we long for their faith to be strengthened so that their lives become more and more consistent with the testimony about Jesus. That's the first thing Paul prays for, verse 11. The second thing is in verse 12. He prays here that their love would increase. Now again, as you read the letter to the Thessalonians, you discover that he's actually spent quite a lot of time commending them for how much they love each other. Now take a look at how he puts it in chapter 4, verse 9. It's just at the bottom of that page. About your love for one another, we don't need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, not just in your local church, but in the whole region. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. He wants their love to overflow, not to be measured, not to be given grudgingly. If you were here last week, I, I commented on the love you have for one another, as I have experienced it in this church over the last few weeks. There's so much to commend. There's so, much, there's so many signs of God's grace. Uh, there's so much to praise God for. And yet you read this and you, and you realize, yeah, praise God, but let's pray for that more and more. Let's pray for more opportunities to show love to one another. Once again, that love is a fruit of God's work in us, and so by praying, we are expressing that we are dependent on you, God, to bring this about in our lives. Now, as you read verse 12, you may have noticed that he's not just praying for the Christians, he's praying that their love for everyone else would also increase. He's not just thinking about Christians here. He wants their relationships with those who don't believe Jesus, those who don't follow him, even their opponents. He wants those relationships to be characterized by kindness and compassion, not bitterness or anger or just a plain disregard. He's showing us that if we want the very best for those around us, if we care about them, if we love them, then we will pray for them. We'll pray for opportunities to serve them and then we will actually serve them. We'll pray that they would have an openness to the message of Jesus, and that hearing the message, they would believe it, that they would share in God's grace to us. And when we see that happening, just like Paul has delight in these Christians, we would delight, we would celebrate, we would praise God for his work. So Paul prays for their faith to be strengthened, their love to increase, and third, in verse 13, he prays that they would be so strengthened that when Jesus comes back, they would be found to be blameless and holy in his presence. He wants their hope of life in Jesus to come to fruition when they meet him face to face. 
We touched on this last week. Jesus is coming back. It may not feel like he's about to after 2,000 years of waiting. That's a long time to wait. You wait and wait and wait, and you, you think, oh, is he actually going to come? Unlikely within my lifetime. Let's just get on with it. But Jesus will return. Are you living as if today might be that day? Will you be alert and self-controlled so that you are presented before him holy, blameless, without guilt? Or, in the language of chapter 5, will you be caught napping? See, it's a call for us to be concerned not just about our personal holiness, but each other's holiness. Loving people means you care for them before our holy God. You know the pattern by now, right? Why are we praying? Because that's God's work in us. God is the one who makes us like him, who sets us apart from the world so that we live differently, distinctly. That's why Paul prays. Our love for each other shows when we pray that for each other, that God keeps us looking at him, anticipating his return, living today in light of that reality. The prayer itself is really straightforward. There's nothing that's tricky to understand about it. The thing that frames it is the love of these Christians for each other. And if you start to get your head around their love for each other, and that infects you, then it will completely change your relationships and your commitment to the people that you're sitting next to. Queen Elizabeth was far from perfect. But by all accounts, she had a living faith in Jesus. And that showed in her concern for the well-being of her people. It's why people now are going out of their way to take those few seconds to show their last respects, to show that they loved her. True love, Christian love, the love that God cultivates in us for one another as members of his family is the sort of love that seeks the good of others. That good is finally found in the Lord himself. And that's the reason Paul's deep affection for, this, for these Christians overflows in prayer. The call for us as we read this is to adopt the same mindset, to commit to praying for each other and for other people not just for their happiness and provision now, but for their eternal good. And let's pray for each other that our faith would be strengthened, that our love would increase and grow more and more, that our hope in Jesus will finally be realized as we stand before him one day.